Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, it's over now, but it's that week between Christmas and New Year's. It's kind of a nice, chilled out time of year. And to celebrate, I want to give you another twofer just of classic rock royalty this time. Our guests are Don Barnes of 38 Special and Roger Earl of Foghat. I'll get to Roger later, but first up, Don Barnes comes on here and talks about how next year, get this, next year is their 50th year, 50 years of 38 Special. <laughs> and uh, so we talk about what the, you know, the highlights of the last 50 years, the stories behind some of the songs. I was especially interested in, like how did those, how did that hot streak of soundtrack work come about? Like with Teacher Teacher and uh, Take Me Back to Paradise and the videos in the 80s. And then he went solo. I didn't know this. Well, I knew about it, but I never heard the album until getting ready to talk to him. He put out this album, which should have come out in about the 90s when it got shelved, called Riding the Storm, that is fantastic. So we can actually kick off the, co the conversation talking about that. There's also time spent with Martin Briley, our former guest, Dan Hartman, who you know I love, and uh, just, you know, 50 years of rock touring and being at it, and they are still at it all the time. So I think you're going to see in here, Don is just one of the best conversationalists ever. So engaging, so nice. He had recently been on Stuck in the 80s, and so I tried not to ask him some of the same stuff for ground that he covered on that one, that he's probably talked about a, a million times. But that's where we're at with this one. So I hope you enjoy this. I love 38 Special. And uh, I've been trying to get Don on here for years, and it finally happened. So I hope you enjoyed. He called me from his home in Atlanta. Where are you? I'm in Denver. Where are you? Atlanta. Okay. I'm home for rare, the rare times yeah. at home. <laughs> no kidding. I, um, I've been, we, I've been trying to line this up for a year. And uh, that's every what Craig time, is telling. Yeah, and Craig's always like, they're on the road, but as soon as it slows down, uh, every few months I'll check back in. As we, do hundred, down, we do a hundred cities a year. Can you believe oh, that? Oh, goodness. And it's still, people come out, man, they want to relive all those songs. I mean, we we see them out there, tears in their eyes and everything. It gets me a little choked up sometimes. <laughs> yes. I Do you ever come to Denver? Because I've never seen you, and I would love to. Well, you know, over the years we we played. Yeah, uh, but it hasn't been any time recent uh, or anything. Yeah, let's see. We did a Denver thing. I think it was sometime this year. But we played McNichols really? Arena. We played. Uh, yeah, Red Rocks. Did you ever ago. play Red Rocks? Oh yeah, several times. We're, yeah, our yeah. plaque is on the back of backstage back there. Nice. The other people were were not worthy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is great. So I gotta, uh, I gotta tell you a story. I, um, in getting ready to talk to you, I have a lot of 38 special albums, but not everything. And I, I thought, isn't there a Dawn solo album in there somewhere? I'm pretty sure there is. And I go look it up on Spotify and I stream it. It's from 2017 ride the storm. And I'm thinking this album is great. This sounds like no time has passed at all. Like it sounds just I like know. something that would have come out at the time. That's amazing. I mean, actually, they're pretty relevant today. The song still. Yes. Still, so still I'm true. listening to it, and I'm and I'm doing my research afterwards. Come to find out, that was that's the one that was recorded back in the '80s and shelled, yeah. and it was produced by Martin Briley, who's been on here. 
And so oh, I message yes, and I can't, I stay in touch with him a little bit. So I messaged Martin to ask him if I should bring anything up, and he says, "Ask Don if he'd like a DBOB <laughs> or a DBOB uh, or something." Do you know what that I is? I don't. I know it's Don Barnes, but it wasn't an OB. Is I, I don't know. know. It's been so long. But Martin's a great guy. He's been a okay. old friend of mine. A DBOB. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't. It's uh, probably something dirty. I don't know. <laughs> it probably is. It probably yeah. is. Yeah. I love that album. Yeah. And Thanks, looking you know. for you. And so I was wondering, when you left the band, what was the plan? That can't have felt good to have made an album that was as strong as anything your band had been doing and oh. have it sit there. I told Jim Peterk about the whole fiasco. He said, man, I think I'd be walking around in my robe for about three months at home. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, you know, they offered a solo album and it was a situation where uh, we were just we had felt like we were doing the same album over and over, you know, we, we had written, we'd done a lot of records up to that point. And, uh, so, so the A&M records had offered me a solo album deal. And, and, uh, so I thought I was like 35 at the time. I was a young guy, plenty of, plenty to prove, you know? So I thought, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll step away. And they said, you know, I can always step back into the band, but I, but, uh, so we, we set about, I, I went to New York and stayed up there on Columbus Circle and went and wrote with Martin Briley, went out to L.A., wrote with all these different writers and got a really good education of just different writers and, mm -hmm. you know, their their process and everything. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we got it all done. And I went, first of all, A&M said you can pick anybody. They were going to, you know, foot, foot the whole bill. They said, pick any session musicians, anybody you want to play with. And, man, I thought, God, if I could get, you know, uh, Jeff Picaro and Mike Picaro and Toto and a Denny Carmasi from Hart. I was all fans of those guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, Dan Huff, you know, he's a, yes. a giant in the industry now, big producer. But yep. he was a session guitarist back then. Played on everything out in LA, and uh, so he, uh, so I, Brian Foraker was the other co-producer. He had written, he had uh, worked with Keith Olson, 
who oh, uh, great Legend. yeah over the years Fleetwood Mac Foreigner all these records so Brian was uh, is a foray into production and everything we had done uh, the Strength in Numbers album the 38 mm -hmm. Strength Numbers with Keith Olson and Brian and uh, so we uh, it was so it was a kind of a, a group effort Martin Briley Brian Foraker myself mm -hmm. but anyway Brian says oh I'll just call up Jeff Picaro and Mike Picaro just you know they they stepped in the studio I'm like. Man, I'm so honored to have you guys. They were like, oh, they, they were great guys. I mean, every, yes. uh, they, they loved the songs, and we just cranked it up in that studio. We had a great yes. energetic sessions every day. And they were going, man, these songs are really, you know, they were really hammering. So, uh, And then Denny Carmasi played on four of them, four, album, uh, four songs. And uh, so, you know, the session was great. We had a great time together, and it was like high energy, everything was prepared, mixed, mastered, everything. And my manager calls me and says, uh, it's unfortunate news here, but A&M Records has been sold to Polygram for like a billion dollars or something, you know? So I'm like, well, we can take the masters, right? We can take that somewhere else and have some money. And so we, he said, I'll, I'll check into it. I'll inquire about it. But yeah, it turns out they they're not in the in the business of of letting any properties go that they bought they paid for yeah. that that record it was about three hundred thousand dollars I mean they paid oh. for all that yeah it was back in the day you you didn't do anything in your bedroom back then uh, no you know <laughs> rental so uh, <laughs> they were not in the business of they they're in the business of acquisitions they just hold on to property you know and so. Yeah. I figured that my manager said it probably would release it posthumously or something. He's like, well, I don't want to count on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so it was a frustrating time. Yeah. We, yeah. We, uh, we offered money to buy the masters and they said, no, not interested. And what's sad about this, you remember the universal studio. Well, first of all, A&M went to polygram. Polygram was absorbed by universal music. It's just a big conglomerate now. You yeah. Know, they, everybody universal owns everybody. Yeah. And you remember yeah. the big fire back yep. in 2011, I think it was. Well, a lot yep. of those masters got burned in the vault. Uh, so even our classic at wild eyed Southern boys, all those masters are gone. Yeah. Luckily it was all digitally, you know, sure. CD and all that. But if you ever wanted to go in and do a TV mix or anything at all, to uh, rearrange or anything, remix or anything, you got no, no masters to do it. But anyway, but my solo album was in there too. So like, that is well, so frustrating. Yeah, so how did it so, eventually come out on Spotify then six years ago? Okay. So the, a guy through the years, it leaked on online. Some of those okay. songs are really crappy sounding recordings because, you know, somebody, whether they, I don't know how they lifted them from the studio or whatever, uh -huh. but you know, a song would come out on YouTube or whatever, and they were really bad. So anyway, a guy from Australia, uh, from uh, Melodic Rock Records, uh, he he got in touch with me. He said, you know, I've seen for years, I've seen these songs leaked online. We've got to get this record out. I said, well, good luck, because <laughs> Universal doesn't want to even deal with it. And yeah. he said... Uh, I know some people at Universal. He says they'll do a search for it. I said, "Well, they've already searched before. It's not mm -hmm. you know something that's easy to do, you know." Mm -hmm. And they were a little bit uh, cloaked in their their the fact that they were the the fire had burned them, but yeah. they didn't want to say that. They just said, "Oh, we'll look for them and sure. we'll look through the vaults and no, oh, just can't find them," you know. So anyway, uh, didn't they so say that he, for years to most people because they didn't want to admit how yeah, much had been right. destroyed? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's been some class action suits and everything, but you know, they the thing about it, John, is they they took the insurance. The Universal oh, took their the insurance didn't dole out any money to artists no, at all. So they just no, took the insurance no. from the fire insurance they had. But anyway, the, yeah. So uh, you know, uh, Andrew McNeese from Melodic Rock Records, he uh, he uh, did some searches for it. And uh, he he came back to him and he said, you know, they said they can't find it if they don't have it in their possession. Then then it's it's any it's up for if anybody. He said, do you Good have point. any copy? So I had in a basement in a box. I had a, my son had uh, transferred a reel to reel tape of uh, the actual album, final mixes and everything. I remember it was in red ink, and I had been mm-hmm. 20, 20 years. You know, I'd been sure. Tour, I'd already gone back with thirty eight special and all that. And so I knew that was red ink. I remember it was red marker. So he he asked me, "Do you have any like master copies of us?" And I think I've got one in a, in a box in the basement. You know, uh-huh. so I went and digging through, and sure enough, down the bottom was this red red ink marker, red sharpened wow. marker. And uh, he said, "Just just you know, insure it." And they shipped it there, and they remastered it and did all that. So then we we had a great album artwork. Uh, yeah, photos and put together, you know, and and the cover and everything. So uh, it came out great. And the thing about it's it is, so once it was released, that it was like uh, number one in Germany and UK and all, you know, really? all around the. So and Japan, I mean, it was like it really got some coverage. So what started out as a, a it became a it became an import uh-huh. <laughs> after all those years. It <laughs> yeah. went through Australia, melodic melodic rock records. And uh, so it just shows you they were sitting on something that was, you know, yes, uh, that was was pretty golden. And they, yes. you know, they, they probably have a lot of situations. I remember it was 1990, and I remember that when my when I found out about the bad news about the record company being sold, that uh, yeah, there were several other artists, Janet Jackson. There were several mm-hmm. other A and M artists. Their projects were also on the shelf. Yeah, everybody yeah. you spend a year and a half writing and recording and doing, and then it's just dead in the water. You know, yeah. so. Everybody had, had to kind of eat it, you know, and just yeah. like, wait to, so, so yeah, so it was, it came out and, and, uh, my, my wife Good. and I cracked, cracked a bottle of champagne finally after finally. something years, you know, thank you. I, I, uh, I was, like I said, I was a young man with a lot to prove. So I was sure. be even more big rock than, than 38 special. I was trying sure. to blow it up you know and uh i love i love so much about it first of all because it feels like the this time capsule of a sound that you just don't hear anymore and then to hear your perfect clear voice over these great rock melodic rock songs is so it's so heartening to hear when martin uh sent over a message he said at the start we would take a cassette of a demo out to forest lawn in a rental car oh yeah we would write the lyrics in the fresh air I know we would go around to gravestones and look at yeah. the car. You know, like it was a, a an idyllic, you know, bucolic place to to sit and ride in the car. You know, yeah, but, uh, yeah. You don't find too many parks around L.A. You know, so we no. we would go over there. That was Martin's idea. He's macabre, <laughs> you know, an English guy. You know. <laughs> now I got to ask you. Speaking of people who, speaking of producers you've worked with, I didn't realize until getting to. I don't know how I missed this. I didn't know Dan Hartman produced the first two yeah. 38 special albums. I love Dan Hartman. And what's yeah. interesting to me about this is because I think he is one of the best, most unsung pop songwriters, sophisticated Absolutely. pop songwriters. And what's interesting to me is that you guys 
didn't really hit your stride from a pop perspective until after you were done with Dan. And so it almost seems like he would have been the right guy to bring you in. Yeah. But turns out he wasn't. Well, it was, we were green. It was 1976, yeah. you know, but we were in awe of Dan. Let me tell you, he had a, uh, he had a studio called the schoolhouse and it was a big, it, it was a big home in Westport, Connecticut, huge home, tennis courts and pool and all that. But he had a, uh, there was one big room that was the original schoolhouse where the kids would walk up the hill and, you know, that was, that was all was there. And the house was built onto that. So he had his track sheet said schoolhouse, you know, on it. And so we would set up amps in that old room, old wooden, you know, hundred year old room and get great sounds and all that. But the thing, and he had six bedrooms there. So most of the band stayed there. A couple of guys stayed down the street at the hotel. But uh, we'd get up in the morning and he had a housekeeper there. would cook breakfast and everything. But we would, we'd hear this guitar playing upstairs and he would just strap on a guitar, low strung, low tuned, and play Hendrix just like it. it this guy was a monster talent. He would sit at a grand piano and play all these Elton John songs just like it. This guy was a major talent. He, yes. he could play anything. He had a harpsichord in his living room and everything. But uh, great writer, and we were we learned a lot from him. You know, we yeah. learned about first of all tuning your ear to to pitches and things because uh, you know he was a stickler for all that. You know, I bet. yeah, he had he had been with the Edgar Winter Group. Yeah, and uh, free ride. He wrote it. I'm sure they thought free ride. perfect for you guys. That was his voice on Free Ride. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he told me a story about, you remember the bass suit? Have you ever done any stuff? Uh-huh. I have. Yeah. I've seen it. He had the, the, the span there, whatever it was. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, it's a suit he wears with a bass guitar built into like a belt buckle. So he just, yeah. it, he doesn't have to hold it or strap it on. It's right there in his clothes. Yeah. It was yeah. like a stick, stick bass, but it snapped under the string, snapped into the belt like uh-huh. that. But he couldn't reach the tuning pegs. And he told me a story. <laughs> Yeah, they were, you know, they're rocking all over the country and everything. And they, they'd introduce him, ladies and gentlemen, Edgar Winter Group. And he ran up the stairs one time and he banged the headstock of the car on the on the railing. And he got up there and it was out of tune and he couldn't reach. That was the one problem he couldn't tune it himself. So they had to stop and let him. You know, there's funny stories like that. But oh, that's hilarious. Guy. Yeah. Now, when I look at those albums, the only song I see that he's got a co-write on co-write on is "Who's Been Messing." Was he, was he just being a producer, letting you guys do your thing, or was he getting more involved in the song craft and kind of uh, helping you guys out that way? Yeah, he was. We were pretty stubborn, and we had our own songs written, yeah. and so we were like, "Oh, 
we're not changing anything. And he goes, yeah. you know, he took me aside, actually. Even who, who's been messing was one of them that he said, he said, you know, there's, there's one thing you got to know that there's going to be a lot of people in this industry that are going to want to feel like they're on your team. They want to feel uh -huh. like they help you along and you have to be welcome and open to it, you know, because uh -huh. I was like, I only hear it one way and I'm not doing it any other way. He said, let me just ask you to live with it for a second. You might uh -huh. like it. If you don't, we'll take this part out. It was basically taking a whole section and throwing it away and putting a key change in there that was like, huh? You know? Yeah. And it, and it turned out to be great. Actually, when he, he started, you know, showing me how it could go, I was like, man, that's pretty cool. But yeah, anyway, but, uh, he was, uh, pretty left leaving us to our own devices at the time. It was his, he was kind of green at, as far as a producer, he had yeah. just started yeah. producing and, uh, he was on blue sky records and Teddy Slatus. I don't know if you know all their, the whole background, but they were getting in production, you know, job yeah. gigs, you know, and he had yeah. an engineer, Dave still, but uh, yeah, he was uh, an amazing musician. But like I said, Love he him. would, like I said, he could pick, play. And then, and he was a big Philly soul guy too. Yes, Hendrix, Hendrix, Elton John, Philly soul had yes. all that stuff. He came from uh, from uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so he was yep. all into that Philly soul stuff, you know. So yep. yeah, he'd be up there doing singing Jackson five songs. It's like, dude, this guy's just got it all, you know. <laughs> totally. And then yeah. after you, he puts out. A couple of the best disco records Great. ever made. He's yeah. just a, an amazing talent. I think I love him a lot. That I can dream about you. Yes. Great song. Great. Yes. Great. So, yeah. Was, yeah. I got to tell you a story, Don. I so when my daughter, who's now sixteen, was born, she was very colicky for the first couple of months, and um, just constantly crying and screaming. And it's my, she was our first. And I remember one night I'm in the office in my house on the computer and I probably, I'm sure I've got music playing and my wife is taking a turn with the baby. Her name is Georgia trying to get her to calm down and can't get her to calm down. So she brings her into me and she says, can you take a turn with Georgia? Cause I just can't. And Georgia is crying and screaming her head off. And, um, Wow. Because I'm sitting on the computer listening, and I've got my iTunes up. I'm like, let me let me click on something here and just see if she likes it. She kept screaming, kept screaming, kept screaming, and then I click on "Back Where You Belong" by Thirty Eight Special. And literally, she's like two or three months old. As soon as it starts, her eyes get really big, and she looks up at me like, what is this? Really? Yes. And it calmed her right down. And so to this day, 
we have a mutual love of 38 special because oh. that was the thing that and i'm such a music lover and that was the thing where i was like my daughter seems to like music too so i wanted to let you know that because of you, she and I shared this moment oh, with a brand new baby. That. I know, is that, that wild? Is so, that's so touching. I, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, and she probably still remembers the song. As she, yes, she now. does. Yes. Well, She's you a big music bring, lover. You need to come to the show, bring Georgia. and we'll, Happily. We'll dedicate that song to her. And oh, that'd be great. Man, I would love it. <laughs> so I want to ask about the making of that video because it's hilarious. And it's one of the... Oh, it's that a, one? Yes. When you, especially the part, yeah. I mean, I, you know, you're all cops and you yeah. all have a history with this woman who's, you know, wanted yeah. and right. the, like the scene on the, on the, um, subway and everything. I thought I was thinking about it. I think that's one of the reasons why you guys especially stood out compared to a lot of other Southern rock bands that weren't getting as much traction in the MTV era. Because not only were your songs poppy and hooky, but you've made great videos. You know what I mean? Well, you could say that was great. We're a little bit, you know, embarrassed about that one. No, but, you know. no, no. At the time, though, they were great. They were just what we needed. I guess so. You know, we we after that one, we said no. We're gonna no more acting because we're not. Uh -huh. you know, so we're gonna just do live videos from then on. Uh -huh. Let's see. No, we did. If I'd been the one, that was okay. the horse and the fire. Yes. That was like maybe the first video I remember yeah. seeing, and uh, with the horses and Julianne Phillips for the Julianne, future yeah. Miss Bruce Springsteen, and yeah, yeah, uh, that was up in Canada. They had all the wheat fields had been harvested in America, and so the, it was still fairly cold, not harvested uh -huh. there. So the, the producer wanted a you know big waving wheat fields, yes. and, the, and the and the old house there was a national monument there. Really? They had uh, they had fire engines, everything out on the set because. They put pipes running with gas through the windows and make it look like it was on fire. Uh -huh. And they would, when they yell action, they turn those flames on and look like it was a house of fire. As soon as it cut, they cut their thing and they douse it all down with water because it was like a really yeah. historic wow. place there. Some old wow. old house in the middle of uh, Canada out there, uh, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. Uh, but back to MTV, we were the first, we were the 13th video the first day. Mm -hmm. Hold on loosely. Live from Denver, Rainbow Music Hall. I know it's been gone for a long time, but uh, they brought out uh, a three-camera crew. They didn't have any content. MTV was so 
nascent, is that the word? Uh, just starting out and had, didn't have enough to air content. So they would bring their own camera crews out. And my manager said, this is this station cable thing. It's called MTV Music Tell. And they want to come out and film some songs. Do you mind us? I don't even know what MTV was. Never heard of it. And uh, so they came out. And I remember... Uh, the, the guy had me hold up, he held up a card and, and for me to do a little spot and said, you'll never hear music the same way again. And I remember thinking what an odd little slogan that was, you know, I wish I'd have bought stock in MTV back then. <laughs> but so they came out, they did, you know, recorded a few uh, bits of content and they played it incessantly on the, on the MTV. So we were the 13th video that very first day. And they, yep. I, I mean, I'd go over to people's house and they'd have it on the MTV is rolling on everybody's cable TV yep. and I'd see all the time. So it really did help our career. It was one right. time that timing actually was on our side. Timing, we were always a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> <laughs> Not timing never worked for us except for that one time. MTV. That was a good one. So yeah. I wanted to ask you about some of your <coughs> soundtrack work because I think because teacher, teacher and, um, take me back to paradise don't show up on official albums sometimes they get lost in the shuffle because they're on the greatest hits packages yeah how did you record come to record teacher teacher because it was it was written by brian adams did he just not want to do it He had an album coming out and it was going to con conflict with with his okay. release and we were on A&M we we're partners on A&M <clears throat> and I knew Brian and, and Jim Valance and he uh, but A&M we were kind of the go-to rock band for A&M they mm -hmm. they had a subsidiary A&M films and so mm. features uh, uh, back back to paradise all these uh, I'm, I'm sorry nerds what is nerds too Nerd, yeah all and so uh but we had been on the road for nine months or so. And so uh, I was so used to hearing, if you listen to the song, Teacher, Teacher, you can hear, just when I finally, finally learned my lesson well, well, you'll hear this echo on it. And I fought back and forth with the producer because he didn't want to put that on there. And I was so used to playing the arenas and yeah. hearing that slap back, you know, of the voice. Yeah. I said, we got to make this thing live sounding because we're, we're on the road here. We actually did that song in like a day and a half and went back out on the road. We stopped in studio one and threw it down and, you know, uh, and, uh, kept on going. But, yeah. uh, so those, those kind of things are just kind of happy accidents, you know, the uh -huh. says, you know this is forever, man. You don't want to put all that echo and slap. I still love it today. Uh -huh. <laughs> I still like it. It was a good choice. <laughs> it was a good choice. Yeah. Um, nerds, 
Your song is the best thing about that unfortunate movie. How did that, were they, did people come to you and like, we, we struck gold with teacher, teacher, let's do another one. Yeah, they were, they saw that we were uh, successful at those, those kind of things, doing yeah. the A&M films. And, and so anytime they had a, you know, a producer that wanted a rock song, they would just uh -huh. say, well, we've got the guys here to yeah. do it. They can do it. And so, uh, yeah, it, it ended up, uh, we, we put all those songs in the show too. I mean, we good. The yeah. show is or, or just a ride, you know. We've always, yeah. we've never yeah. been this band that just goes complacent, and you know, uh -huh. like we always felt like we don't, you know, we don't don't slack up, we stack up, you know. So uh -huh. we go out there uh -huh. and we we bang all the songs against each other, and everything's like a ride. Like I said, Ooh. it takes you all the way to an hour and forty minutes. You got to come out, bring Georgia, make uh -huh. sure, and uh, come out and, and witness it because it. You know, one thing we learned from Leonard Skinner a long time ago is they went out like a football team. They didn't go out there and stare at the shoes and say, thank you very much. Our next mm -hmm. song is this, you know. Mm -hmm. They were like, how's everybody? You know, and it was yes. always big, you know, and yes. bringing that gang, you know. So we always yeah. adapted that thing, that, that attitude to it. <clears throat> so all those songs from the movies, uh, you know, we put uh, even I've got Jerry Riggs, who's the other lead guitar player. This guy's a monster talent. I mean, this, he he was uh, he he did the remember heavy metal soundtrack. Uh -huh. You know, yes, he, I do. He did, he did Radar Rider, the opening song for the movie. Really, Radar that's Rider. him. And it was a band called Riggs. 
and that yes. was Derek Fix. Yeah, so he's no, so I, I, I put that. that in the show, and people love that because they they remember it's great. That's, that's a weird spaced out kind of movie. I said, how uh-huh. can you get hooked up with that weird mass movie? <laughs> it's a weird. But, uh, it's great soundtrack though. Billy Squires on there, Sammy Hagar, oh, I think Iggy Pop's on yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jim Peterick actually co-wrote with Sammy Hagar, Heavy Metal. That's right. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Don Felder, also heavy metal. Yes. Yeah. Forgot he's yeah. on there too. <laughs> so yeah. it's a great sound. It's like triple platinum album, that, that yeah. sound. So, so uh, yeah, during the show, I explained to everybody that, you know, it was, he did the soundtrack and, you know, we're going to do a little radar rider. And so then we do a fun. couple other scenes from the movies. And Jerry kind of takes him a different place for a minute. It's a, uh-huh. it's a really awesome thing. You, I, I, we get, we walk off. And he's got a keyboard backing. He does all this Jeff Beck soloing thing and just really? takes them down a, a whole different direction just for about three minutes. But after he's done, people are roaring. He this yeah. guy's he just he just wows them, you know. He's one of these guys that dazzles the crowd. That's and uh, it, the guy's he's from Knoxville, Tennessee. Great, cool. no ego. Yeah, just no. the nicest, salt of the earth, feet yeah. on the ground guy, you know. And uh, so he's, it's great to have him. He's been cool. here for about five years now. Yeah. I'm curious, do you guys play Second Chance? Because yeah, so, do you? Okay, yeah. As you know, I mean, Max has been on here, and he just couldn't okay, be a sweeter yeah. guy. And Max, plus, his guy. voice is just oh otherworldly. Oh my god! I gosh. got to meet him in Nebraska. We did a corn stalk or something, a big festival out there, and he came up on the bus, and I told him I, yeah. I appreciate you know helping out, keeping the name of the band sure you know, fresh, and you know, yeah. But uh, excellent singer, great musician. The guy's. Really nice guy, and Bobby Caps is our keyboard player. He sings uh, Second Chance. And oh, does he? he? he okay, he mimics uh, Max's voice for that. Yeah, that song. So everything, like I said, it's a ride. It's everything it is. climbing up, big explosive opening, and then it kind of takes you for a little bit of a break in the middle with Second Chance and those things, uh-huh. and then just climbs up, big big finish. But anyway, back to Max. Yeah, just a wonderful guy, you know. He's, he is. He's with uh, Grand Funk Railroad, yeah. Yes, he is. I love him. All right, I know we're coming up on time. I want to ask you just a couple more questions. Dri- I'm curious about Drivetrain because uh, I worked for Tower Records in the early 2000s in their corporate oh, yeah. offices. Yeah, uh-huh. their cor- and I remember at the time, I think it was, because that album came out on Sanctuary, right? 
Sanctuary, yeah. And I think Sanctuary's business model at the time was to take really good legacy bands like yours and get behind new music from these bands, which I thought sounded like a perfect idea. When Drive Train came out, which is the last studio album from 38 Special, if I remember (coughs) did you have songs ready to go? Did you have to sort of create them for the sake of Sanctuary? What's the story of that Radio was pretty fractured at the time, and they yeah. their directive to us was we we can't get any traction on AM, you know, pop radio, pop rock, but uh, rock radio was still open. The doors were still open for rock songs, so they said we want a big, nasty rock record. So we okay. that's why you hear that that album is really it is everything totally amped is. up everything the room mics are all on everything is just real cacophony of yeah so that was our goal is to to deliver a rock record so it would go to rock radio so whatever song called uh, hurts like love was on there Yeah, with several several songs that made it rock radio, but yeah, uh, again, it was radio was starting to become fractured. You know how it is now. I mean, the brick and mortar record companies are just about gone now. You yeah. know, everything's online. Yeah. So uh, that was the the goal. There was that we could, we did have songs that, to answer your question, uh, songs that were a little bit more relationship oriented, like Caught Up in You and those things, mm-hmm. but they weren't going to fit on this big ugly rock record. So right. we, we held them aside. We still, we're working on a few things now. Good. Putting out some things, yeah. yeah. You know, nowadays you can just put out like a four or five song EP or something. You can, you know? whenever. And online, everybody's streaming it and everything. But I've, I've always said you might as well, at this point, give your music away because they're going to be trading it around everything. But the thing I look at is that if it makes a fan of someone, they're going to tell a friend and then they'll go come to the show, buy a ticket. Buy a T-shirt, buy you know, yeah. get a beer or whatever, and yeah. so you can't download a live show. We've always no. been that that live. That's our forte is to go out there and hammer them, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and we're still out there doing it, you know. So yeah, yeah. I love it. I really like Jam On on Drivetrain.
Which, yeah. especially the messaging, because it's, you know, it seems to be sort of a, what are we doing to the planet? Are we taking good That's enough right. care of our kids and stuff like that? Which I, yeah, we especially, I mean, that, that message was 20 years ago and look, it's worse if not that, you know, that, today. that, uh, that song we wrote, co-wrote with Jim Peter from Survivor. We had done a bit of old friends, old friends, old writers together, but, uh, I had seen on the, uh, cover of like time magazine it was a bono had said uh, the power of music can change the world and i thought well if it can then jam on let's <laughs> let's try to do something about this you know so yeah. that that was the whole impetus to uh, inspiration of that song is to bring it around if music can do it if you think you can change the world and let's let's get to yeah. it you know jam yeah. on yeah i agree yeah <laughs> it's a good one well look i um i wish we had more time i just 38 Special has been a part of my life as long as I've been aware of what music is and how much it moves me. And so thank you for being you, Don. You've just got one of the best voices in rock. I feel like it's underrated. One of the best bands in rock. I can't wait to see you guys live sometime. I hope you come through Denver. That's so, so kind of you. I, I tell you, it was not an easy road. You know, we... <clears throat> we started out, we were, it was a lot of desperation involved in the beginning, you know, we weren't winning uh-huh. and about the, the three albums went over, straight over the cliff, you know? So we, yeah. a lot of people think that wild eyed Southern boys with hold on Lucid was our first album. That was our fourth album. We had A&M records. Uh, I could go in and if you, if you want to go a little longer, I can tell you that. Yeah, please. Skinner, Skinner had the tragedy in 77 and we, we only had a two album deal and we'd already done two albums, or I think it was the third album had Rock Into the Night on. Anyway, mm-hmm. somewhere in a boardroom in A&M Records, I think they didn't didn't have the heart to drop us after what had happened. And Donnie had lost his brother and everything. So they that that's a it's a tale that you know just squeaked by. You know, somebody gave you one more chance. Yeah, and he turned everything around and said, "If we've got to." change a complete formula let's do that donnie was donnie was the one that said why don't you sing a few songs let's yeah. let's change yeah. everything around let's strip all the guitars all the overproduced guitars and come down to tick 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 you know yes. all that put a we call it a muscle and melody you know if you got <laughs> you got That's a it, perfect guitar yes. a good melody a good story over the top you know if it ain't yeah. broke don't fix it you know so i love it i, I was 20 gonna, million yeah. records later we we did okay absolutely so I was going to ask you this, and if this is a sensitive tub- subject, you tell me, but I, it did strike me that it it couldn't have been a coincidence that the hits started coming when you started taking over a lot of the vocals. And I wondered if Donnie ever had an issue with that or expressed any frustration. Donnie and I are have been partners since we were 14 years old. It, we always looked at it as it, it, we were a team, and it didn't matter who carried the ball as long as you won as a team. And he was yeah. the one that said you know, cause he had done two albums, almost three albums. And he said, you know, let's put a different sound in there. And it turned out that Donnie had more of an earthy voice, but I had the more radio friendly voice. Yep. And so we both won anyway. Today, we still own the trademark, the brand. Good. Donnie and I are still, still together. Oh yeah. yeah. He, he knows that we're, you know, we're friends for life and partners. You know, we've always been. So, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, that was never a problem. He okay. was like, go get them, man. Let's go. Good. Let's get this thing happening. Yeah. I think that's a real testament to people's character when they see that, uh, you know, a, a progress or, or fandom or whatever is moving a band in a certain direction and it doesn't necessarily include them or it requires them to change their role in the group and to stand yeah. back and say, I'll do that. 
Let's we're having success here. Yeah. People seem to like it with Don singing. I'll to take a back seat. I don't have to sing the hits. That's okay. He's, and it's the best of both worlds because yeah. we had the, the earthy, big, you know, ZZ yes. Top kind of approach. You know, all those, those are songs are still there. They're just on the right, album. Still there. Yeah. Donnie did a great job on all those stuff. I was producing mm-hmm. him. He was in the studio with me, you know. So, uh, again, as long as the team was winning, hey, nobody's complaining yeah. about anything. Because yeah. we'd already seen the other side of it. You know, yes. we were... We actually had stood in unemployment lines after the second album. People don't realize that. Oof. We had sunglasses and hats on. We were trying to you know, not be recognized. <laughs> but we were entitled to our unemployment check. You sure, know? So, sure. You know, so you, you, this is not something I recommend to any of these young guys with bands. You know, I tell them, have fun on the weekends. Play with your buddies. Have a few beers. Have a great time. But when you start try to pay bills and eat from it, mm-hmm. that's when you have a real bad time. Because yeah, uh, people, uh, <clears throat> I can go back into the way back there in Jacksonville was a was a it was a, a navy town. It was f- uh, four naval bases, mm-hmm. and everybody when we were fourteen or fifteen years old, Dwayne Allman, Greg Allman, Ronnie Vance, we all played sailors clubs at fourteen, fifteen years old. You make a hundred bucks a week, you know, but you're playing cover songs, Santana, Blood, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and, and anything that came down the, the radio, down the pike there. But you, uh, you get to a little, you start, you start understanding the structures of songs at an early age, and you know where the payoff is, and it's, it's yes. kind of a graph, and you start seeing the pre-chorus and the big you know, slamming chorus, and then the outro and the bridge and that kind of thing. And then you get cocky and you start thinking, no, I can write my own songs now. And that's, that's when you go star for 10 years. So, yeah. <laughs> so all those guys, everybody played Sailor's Club. So I guess we yeah. owe our career to the Navy. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, you talk, talking about paying bills and stuff like that, you, you probably don't have to play 100 and whatever shows a year if you didn't want to. No. Do you ever just want to retire and play golf and drink beer? You know, it, it, uh, like McCartney famously said, they asked him, why, why aren't you retiring? Well, he said, what would I do? I'd sit around and play music with my friends. I might as well go out and do it, you know? So that's the thing is that it's the... You can you can crank a guitar up to 10 and be 22 years old again and be on stage yeah. and crowds are roaring. I mean, what's not to love there, you know? Yeah. You see the instant reactions. People have come up and said, some of our songs, of course, we were just trying to get on the radio, but people, hold on, Lucy. that song and the, the advice in that song it saved our marriage we never looked at it that way and it's like well we didn't we, we didn't set out to be someone that 
doling out advice. We were just trying to get on the radio. Yeah. But it turns out it, it was a good piece of advice. And it's been an anthemic song 40 right. years later, you know, and people still right. wait for that song. And married couples out there, they're hugging each other. You start seeing all that. Every one of those songs had came from true stories. So That's right. uh, Ronnie told us a long time ago, first of all, he said, stop trying to be a clone of whatever's happened before you because it's already been done. And we felt like it had been done by the best. And he said, put, find what makes you, your influences, what makes your heart sing. And we realized we were, weren't so much the uh, blues oriented, you know, whiskey and bad women kind of thing. We were more <laughs> British invasion, you know, animals, beetles, you know, all, all the mm -hmm. melody and muscles, you know, so we liked that kind of thing. And of course, you know, we ended up, touring with bad company and I, Paul, Paul Rogers, I mean, the best, you know, the best. It's, it's a travesty. He's not in the hall of fame. That's ridiculous. Simon Kirk Everybody, was on here earlier this summer and we had the oh, exact yeah. same conversation. Yeah, yes. The, it, he'll get it one day. Yes. They should all get it. But anyway, ZZ Top became friends with it. We toured with those guys. So we were always, you know, uh, they were all influencing us as we were going along. But, yeah. uh, you know, what about Bob Seeger? You guys, I was listening back. You remind me, your 80s output, it reminds me a lot of what he was focusing on in the yeah. 80s, too. We played a stadium in, in Atlanta uh, years ago in the 70s. And Kiss was the big head. Oh. Mm -hmm. Bob Seeger, uh, Blue Oyster Cole, everybody was on there. But we shared a dressing room with Bob Seeger. And he oh. a simple piece of advice because uh, he was on his way and we were just still starting out. And at one, sure. a lot of people heard of us. We were on the show. And he said, man, I'm, I'm just going to tell you one thing. Uh, be yourself. Do what you do. And don't try to copy others. It's the same thing as Ronnie said, you know. But And it was just like I'm standing and talking to Bob Seger. And he's he's been from the 60s with Rambling Gambling Man and all that People stuff. don't know all that early garage right. rock stuff yeah. of his. So, yeah. He's an yeah. icon. You know, all he is. That. Yeah. So. He is. So, oh, anyway. man. I could do this for hours, Don. You're the yeah, best. We should do Thank it again you, sir. Time, John. Okay. Thank you so much for finally doing this with Thank me, you, and I hope you come through Denver. I'll be yeah, there. Yeah. All right. There you have it, Don Barnes. Wasn't he great? I love that. You know what? I got to tell you. So I was told that he would only have 30 minutes to talk, but he might go closer to 45, and so I tried to keep it in the middle. I should have just kept going because he was so cool and, and engaging. I bet he would have kept talking to me. Granted, he might have been annoyed at me, but I would have gotten more good stuff because he's so great. Anyway, thank you, Don, for talking with me. Oh, and by the way, DBOB, Martin Briley tells me that stands for Dead Bird on Bun because apparently they would go get chicken sandwiches every day for lunch. Now you know. Now, same situation here with Roger Earl, the original drummer of Foghat, the only original member still in the band. They are also still out there going strong, too. In fact, they just released a new album called Sonic Mojo that is great. So we talk about Sonic Mojo in here, and then Twig. Roger, he wouldn't want me to say this, but, I mean, he's in his late 70s, you know? But he's still behind the kit, killing it. And Foghat, I mean, let's be honest. Most people, most casual music listeners know them for Slow Ride, of course. This song right here. I wanted to kind of spread the, the news. I wanted to kind of shine a light on other songs of theirs that I've always liked that uh, aren't slow ride so that people get an idea of what else is out there because it's all great. And then he just shares some stories about, you know, his rock life. And similarly, I was told to keep it to about a half hour, but we went a little long because we liked each other. So anyway, hope you enjoy this. He called me from his home. 
in uh, on Long Island. I'm curious, Roger, when did you first move to the U.S.? Uh, first came here in 69 when I was in Savoy Brown, but I moved here um, in 73. I decided I've always been a fan of American music ever since yeah. I was a kid. You know, America was the place where right. I wanted to land of dreams, a land of music. Um, you know, this is the land of music. Blues yeah. started it, jazz, bebop, rock and roll, country, folk music. Uh, you know, um, it's gospel music. I mean, this yeah. like the land music. This is where it all comes from. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to be here. Um, I moved here in '73. I got off the boat. <laughs> I was on this <laughs> bar called Long Island, and it's my home. Uh, yeah. I, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love it. it here. Yeah, I make good friends. Um, I try to behave. Yeah, much, much he looks over at his other at his <laughs> wife to make sure. <laughs> I try to behave. Yeah. Uh, well, good. I ask because I feel like fog. I mean, when you when you listen to Foghat, even going back all the way to the beginning, it sounds like such. It's so much more of an American blues boogie rock sound than it is a British one. I mean, the British bands like the faces and. Zeppelin and stuff like that. We're doing that kind of thing, but I feel like there's something more rooted in like American sweat and soil in Foghouse music. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, <clears throat> my introduction to, well, there was always music in my house, our house when I was growing up. I, I grew up in Southwest London in Hounslow. And then when I was 15, I moved to central London. <clears throat> my father played piano. That wasn't his day job. Is uh, he worked at Aston Martin's to, as a panel fitter? My older brother Colin is four years older than me, and he introduced us to Sun Records. Early oh, Elvis yes. Presley, Elvis Presley's first band. What are you kidding? What a yes. great rock and roll band that was! It JD yep. Fontana, uh, Bill Black, um, who was a guitar player. Oh, how can I forget his name? I, I know have, I'm blanking on his name uh, too. It'll come to me in a minute. I'll just yeah. pop out. Um, <laughs> I was a big Johnny Cash fan as well. Yes. I love Cash. Um, I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm riding my bike to school and singing Johnny Cash songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she loves you, big river, more than me. <laughs> I, I met her accidentally. <laughs> so, I mean, I had no idea what these songs were about. Yes, yes. But Johnny Cash, there was always a story. Yeah. And I love, and I you know being a you know 12 13 years old I love stories and I didn't know didn't always know what they were and there was always this rhythm that that going through it and that appealed to me because yeah. back then I was uh, 11 I hadn't started playing drums I was ruining mum's good china and playing <laughs> on spoons <laughs> you know um, but uh, I never got to see Johnny Cash live but I have most of his records and uh, early Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley's yeah. first up. Uh, Jerry D. Lewis was the one that uh, turned me upside down. I saw my father took me to see him when I was about, I think I was probably about 12 years old <coughs> in uh, Southwest Theatre. And uh, I was never the same. Um, oh, yeah. It, uh, my mother 
I've seen this. I said this a lot, but it's the truth. My mother said, it addled his brain. He was never the same after that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, rock and roll will do that to you. (laughs) Yeah, rock and roll will do it to you. And of course, Chuck Berry. We'd all be out of work with Chuck Berry. um, uh, You know, listening to chess records. um, Willie Dixon, there would be no rock and roll. It wasn't for Willie Dixon. Uh, That's what I grew up listening to. And and Scott Holt, our singer, who joined us two years ago. I've known him since 2014. He is a walking in, talking encyclopedia of American music. Blue. You know, that's where, that's, yeah, what did he call it? That's my wheelhouse. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. Uh, I'm curious, I'm curious, Roger, when you guys put out new albums like Sonic Mojo, do you still, I mean, you've been at this for like 55 years or more. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, it goes, you know, you are a lifer. And I'm curious if putting out new albums, which thankfully Foghat still does a occasionally do you still get that same like excitement that same thrill of like oh my gosh we have a new out and because the, the business is totally different you're not really going to see it on record st- store shelves right. anymore but the, but just knowing that you're birthing something new and creative out in the world do you still get that same thrill yeah um yeah. as you said i'm a lifer you yeah. know you know it, you know what it is it's like careful what you wish for um I've been fortunate. I always played with great musicians right from the very beginning. First band I was in when I was 16 <clears throat> was three friends I went to school with. They've been playing since they were nine or 10 years old. So <clears throat> I was kind of like a Johnny come lately, but um, they were all great players. Uh, Ray Dorsett, the singer, guitar player, went on to play with uh, in uh, Mungo Jerry with my yeah. older brother. Had a bunch of hits in Europe, one over here. But, um, <clears throat> and it's like, and then I joined Savoy Brown when I was what, 19 or so. So, <clears throat> and all great players, Kim Simmons. And I think Chris Jordan was one of the best sort of British versions of a blues singer. Um, and Kim Simmons, I stayed really good friends with Kim throughout the years. And, uh, so I always played with really good players. So, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. The, Drummer and the bass player. I mean, you, we have to get it right. They're nothing without us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I'm curious. I, I so I had Ian Anderson on here. I've had him on here a few times actually, and we were talking about. I love to tell this story when I talk to especially people like you who've been at it for a long time. I asked him what he would miss most if it were all to end today, and I mean you more than almost anyone I've ever spoken to in nine years is a road warrior. You your happy place appears to be on the road. And so I'm curious, Ian, when I asked him that question, he said, after every show, I go back to the hotel, I take off all my clothes and I lay on the bed and I watch the news and drink a beer. And that's what he would miss the most. And I'm curious, Roger, what you would miss the most if it were all to end, because you're getting up there. It may end soon. Not death, uh... but just retirement. You know what I mean? Uh, no, that's not in my vocabulary. Um, you know, uh, um, before I go on stage, even though, you know, I still get chills. We, the, yeah. the four of us, we have a thing, you know, where we touch hands and like, 
uh-huh. do that with each other. And before we go on, I whether it's like 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 people, I still get chills. It's like the excitement. But as soon as I sit down and I do the count off the first song, I'm like there. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, I play drums in a rock and roll band. I play with great players. I'm having the fucking time of my life. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, I do enjoy having a glass of wine after the show and talking to everybody and, like, you know, um, just talking about it. Or we'll talk about something else. But, um, uh-huh. no, it's all about – for me, it's all about playing. Um the rest of the day is hurry up and wait. Uh, yes. Tra- trains, planes, automobiles. But um, the real thing that makes it worthwhile is I play in a band. Everybody gives a shit. Everybody yeah. cares. They're all terrific players. Um, we have a fantastic uh, management. I, I mean, I, I know the, the manager is, in fact, my wife and girlfriend. Hmm. But, uh, <laughs> but we have a, a great team. Um, uh, they put together a, a Linda put together a bunch of people like help promote this album, so it doesn't just sort of like escape. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's great. It? it was number one on the Blues Billboard charts. Nice. So, that, that's right. Wow. <laughs> Linda, Linda came in about nine o'clock in the morning and said, "You're number one on the Blues Billboard charts." I said, "Number one? No, I've what? never been." <laughs> Um, I think it's number five this week, but that's um, great. You're coming. I live in Denver, and you're coming through here in February. And I've never seen Foghat, so this is going to finally be my. I'm in Denver. Denver. Yeah, oh. yeah. So this will be my first chance to get to see you guys finally. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I sometimes lay a little bit of guilt on people to say things like that. I say, "You haven't seen Foghat." Uh, that's I know. A sick, I mean. You know, what are you, you going to tell your grandchildren? I never saw a folk hat. If you said, I saw a folk hat, then I go, really? Really? <laughs> well, this is my chance, finally. I don't know what took so long, but it did. Speaking of taking so long, I want to ask you about some of my favorite fog hat songs, and I'm curious what right. your what your memories are of them. Eight Days on the Road, to me, you are the MVP of that song.
and because I love the cowbell, I love the shakers. I'm yeah. just imagining that's you going nuts with every little bit of product, you know, um, percussion. That's geez, all the percussion little tchotchkes that are sitting around in the studio and just having a blast. That's what that sounds like to me. Well, you know, um, Nick Jameson was the producer on that record. And Nick Jameson and I always have fun. Nick uh -huh. James is one of those people, like <clears throat> an incredible musician. He plays every instrument really well. If he doesn't, if he hasn't played it, he'll pick it up, and five minutes later, he's playing it like he's played it all his life. Do you hate people like that? That's <laughs> <laughs> mere mortal struggle with. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, Nick Jameson's the one who says, "Come on, Roger," and uh, he'll come out and join me in the studio on that record. Um, Nick was the one who said, "Do this here," do that. and afterwards, it's fun. Um, yeah. We were we haven't played it this year, but um, up until two years ago, we were playing it regularly in the set. Yeah, it's, okay. it's not. I'm trying to remember who did it originally. Um, I don't know. I just love your your version because I just love listening to you do your thing on that song. Yeah, I'm having, a, I'm having yeah. a good time. Good. <laughs> what about Step Outside? That's another one of my favorite Foghat tracks. Take a ride, yeah. That was um, yes. we did that on the. I think it was the Energized album. It was Tom Dawes, Tom Dawes was our producer. Brilliant, brilliant man, and uh, uh, it was it was kind of a departure the way the way we were playing it. Was, yeah. it was like a funky kind of thing, uh -huh. like, like that. And um, that was fun to play. And then um, uh, Tom brought in uh three chicks to sing background harmonies <laughs> on it and it was like wow this is like turning like we were there for that it was uh -huh. like it was turning into like this and i think they released it as a single we played it a few times i remember playing at a festival just outside of detroit mm. and we got you know the three chick singers they were great as well and they sang it and i think they sang a couple of other songs with us but um yeah it was um it was slightly it. That, that was to, due to our pro producer. Tom Dawes is a brilliant musician. I played one of those. He plays everything. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, it was great yeah. working with him. It is. I love that song for so many reasons. I love that you said funky. That's a good word to describe it. The other thing I love about it is that it sound, the, the sound or the attitude or vibe of the song fits the message of the song which is just step outside i imagine a guy 
bursting open his front door on a bright spring or summer day. You know, maybe he's up in the mountains, just taking it all in. Step outside, you know, just taking a big whiff of the beautiful morning air. That's what that song sounds like to me, you know? I, I seem to recall it. I mean, all of a sudden, we instead of like, you know, three guys in front of me, you've got these three beautiful women sort of uh-huh. dancing in front of me. I'm going, is <laughs> <laughs> the spoils of rock stardom is having beautiful women dance in front of you for sure yeah, yeah they, they were great too yeah good okay i have another one for you i wanted to i wanted to ask about stranger of my hometown I find the fog hat power pop period of the early eighties really, really fascinating. You put on that song and it, at the beginning, it sounds like Duran Duran until it kicks in and you can tell, I think so anyway, right at the beginning until it, you know, settles that. In. what's that? I said, don't tell Dave that. But, no, no, but it does. It sounds a little bit like Duran Duran until it settles into like little harder guitar or whatever. You can tell more it's fog hat. But that was such an interesting total pivot from the blues boogie into the power pop. Do you what's going on in the band? Are you thinking we've got to we've got to roll with the times? This is what's happening. This uh, Dave wrote that. Craig uh, uh-huh. was uh, playing bass with it. Um, Dave was, I think, he was getting to the point where he was kind of he was starting to think about where he grew up. Um, you know, there was a couple of songs he wrote like. Um, that in particular was a stranger in my hometown. He went back to a brick. He grew up in Brixton in London South and in uh, Wimbledon. But Brixton was his first where he grew up until he was about 16. Then he moved, his parents moved to Wimbledon. But um, he would often talk about it. Um, Electric Avenue and a few other places around that area. And, and there was a lot of stuff going on in Brixton. I mean, great music, you know, yeah. reggae, rock and roll. Uh, blues, uh, you know, it's a music area. Mm-hmm. Same, yeah. I mean, like when I was growing up in London, uh, I left home when I was fifteen. I was, a, I became a commercial artist or a junior artist at a <laughs> a studio in central London, and I would go to all the sort of the reggae clubs and stuff, which was basically like a red light, and you you pay your 
pound or something and they give you a coca-cola or something and you'd be in this room with this like dance in a movie and it was really boomy yes. yes dave wrote that song i think about the fact that when he did go back to brixton or to london he didn't know anybody he didn't know anything everything had changed since he was yeah. you know a 15 year old kid growing up there and that's what that was about um he, he's not here to correct me if i'm wrong sure but sure i remember it um and craig and i had a good time laying down the the basic track with it cowbell again yes there you go <laughs> yes for sure so but that whole tight shoes album again it sounds like um an adjustment to what's happening it sounds like elvis costello or graham parker or joe jackson or that kind of stuff which isn't what fog had had been doing up to that point i'm curious when you go into making that album do you guys all say to yourselves we need to adapt our sound to the new times no um we were never that clever <laughs> oh really oh interesting okay no, dave, dave was the main songwriter in the band uh -huh. and we had our own studio uh boogie hotel down in port jefferson and dave would write the songs he would um he would you what he would do he would send me a cassette of the basic outline of the song he would put it together on a he had an eight track recorder at home and i would listen to it and then craig and i the bass player would like work on like the rhythm section and figure some stuff out and, and come up with some the arrangement and uh, you know and change a few things but it was basically uh where dave's head was at, at the time uh, that's what he was thinking. it wasn't uh uh i guess it was a deliberate thing on his part but with the band um you know you have the lead singer and the main writer in the band is who you're playing with who yeah. you're you know we're the band and like um uh, so it didn't feel that different at the time huh? uh, it, it's interesting you bring these songs up because i always thought those that era i really enjoyed it it was exciting we had our own studio we were putting out records but uh, not too many people talk about it thank yeah. you of course i love that period i find it real interesting i mean i'm a child of the 80s and so i find it really fascinating to see what older legacy bands like yours did during that period to adjust to the new wave sound and some of them did it really well and some didn't do it so well and i love what you guys were doing that's why I went, in fact i meant to ask you i on the new album i don't appreciate you is a song on that album that reminds me a little bit of the tight shoes era there's a slight power pop feel to that song do you know what i mean Start 
Yeah, actually, <clears throat> that's, that's our version of punk. There you go. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, well, Frog Hat was rock and roll. Punk is rock and roll. Rock and roll is punk. I mean, that's where it started. Um, and Scott Holt uh, has a record store in uh, Columbia, Tennessee, that he has with a partner down there. And um, he was listening to the Sex Pills and stuff. I actually wrote the initial lyrics for uh, I Don't Appreciate You. It was about, it can be about anybody, you know, an ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, um, ex-manager. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> and Scott took it, and he was listening to the Pistols and a few other punk bands, and uh, he took it and turned it into, I mean, I didn't envisage it as a really fast song. Um, it, you know, I just had the lyrics and like, and the, the attitude, the attitude, you know, uh, uh, how does Scott describe it these days? It's uh, the most polite F you song ever written. <laughs> you know, I think with, with some of my lyrics, the original lyrics, I, I was a little bit more, um, direct, maybe <laughs> direct. Yes. Thank you. Um, but Scott being, uh, and that's one of the cool things about writing with other people. We share an idea. We'll start with, sometimes we'll just have a, you know, a guitar, and sometimes it's a title. Sometimes it's a bunch of, from one for another word, poetry until we come up with an idea, you know, where, where are we going to put this? How are we going to put this together? Because we like what we've written and the story, but we don't have a title. We've got to have a title. and. Uh, it's uh yeah i don't appreciate you as um i i, I was really to punk that's great and what it i'd actually torn my shoulder muscle prior to this and i couldn't get it fixed because we had we were working during the year so i taped my shoulder up and we were playing and we would we worked out the basic arrangement what we were doing to it and um just talking and I'm sitting on a pad and like going through the tempos and stuff. And then uh, Scott said, well, let's play it. And I've been playing, we've been playing for like three or four hours and my shoulder was killing me. And uh -huh. I said, all right, I've got one more in it. And it was like uh, myself and Scott, uh, he's, and then it's his original vocal and rhythm guitar and me uh -huh. playing drums. Brian was on, the board recording it and, and um rodney wasn't there at the time oh. and i just did it once and you, you can actually tell i think by the end of the song by the way i ended i ended it about half a bar too early but it was like, <laughs> i'm done, it was like, I'm done. I'm... <laughs> and brian and, and scott went then when we came back to it and said oh this is great and i said no i think i can do it better they said no 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 this no, is great. No. This is what the song's all about. Yes. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, you know. That's great. I, Good. Yeah, because, I love stories like that. So I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again to and think about you and the state you were in while performing it. I want to ask you about Driving On, too, because <clears throat> it's it's a great song, and it's an, it feels like an obvious sort of homage or love letter maybe to ZZ Top. It's 2 a.m., long way to go. It's dark all over, 
moon starting to glow Gotta stay awake No matter what I do Wanna see my girl When the night is through I'm driving on And I gotta be strong And it won't be long I'm driving on She'll be waiting for me to pull in. I'll be so happy to let love begin. Having a way couldn't get home. Now I'm ready, been too long gone, and I'm driving on. I, I mean. Uh- whether it was directly or indirectly, that's sort of what it sounds like. And I know you two bands go way, way back. In fact, I had their uh, producer, Terry Manning, on here. He's been on a couple of times. And we talked about uh, ZZ Top recently, again, because I was saying that if they hadn't embraced the 80s quite the way that they did to yeah. like have that resurgence, they would have stayed a respectable blues rock band probably in the same in a similar vein to Foghat or something like that or you know Marshall Tucker or Molly Hatchet or one of those kinds of bands what what is your history with ZZ Top uh one of the greatest bands that's ever come out of the states certainly out of Texas yes uh, I'm I've sure I'm, you two have toured and stuff like that right I, yeah we toured together uh Billy Gibbons is probably one of the best blues blues guitarists that I've ever heard Absolutely. Uh, Billy is absolutely beautiful. I don't really know the other two guys in the band, but Billy would always say, like, hang out for a while and wander around backstage in his pajamas. <laughs> no, and he was, he's always up to sort of play with somebody or like, yeah, talk to people. Um, Billy Gibbons is just like, he's like a breath, breath of fresh air. He's also like inundated with, with blues and Texas uh-huh. music. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I remember, like, I remember. Um, let's face it. Um, what's the uh, the the uh, the they? I mean, they boogie like nobody else. Oh. You know, the, they play shuffles and stuff. It's yes. like uh, nobody else. Uh, Lagrange. Lagrange. Remember, yeah, that's what. Remember one time we, Dave and I were we were in uh, New Orleans. We were just, we had a couple of days off like we do and like we we're out wandering around and like, you know, having a few and having a good time. We we're in this, I think it was a dungeon, a club, and they put on LaGrange. And Dave and I weren't dancing partners, but we grabbed a few people and said, come on. Uh-huh. And like, <laughs> it was, it was funny. And that, and I remember that because it was like a one off. Yeah. That came. It was super, super loud, and like Dave and I looked at each other, and then grabbed a couple of chicks, and like, we started dancing. It was like in the dungeon. That was it. Uh, I've never told that. Oh, I love it. I love it. The Dave and I used to dance together, <clears throat> but basically, that's what making music is, isn't it? Yeah, You're it dancing. Is. You know, Brian Bassett once said to me, uh, he told a story. He said, playing music is like you're having a conversation with somebody um, or dancing. Dancing is yeah. a conversation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. It's like the sexual act and the foreplay all in one. I talked to a jazz jazz legend named Les McCann recently. We were talking about this. Yeah. And uh, how it's just the whole uh, sort of seduction and, you know, uh, orgasm or whatever you want to say, like the explosion all at once. If it goes well, if music is, yeah, <laughs> Roger's making a face. <laughs> I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if it all goes yeah, well I and do. two people I are do. just feeling it in the studio and vibing off each other. I want to I ask know. you one other thing. I spoke with Don Barnes of 38 Special recently. Okay. And you guys hey, came. Yeah. And Foghat came up in that conversation too. What are your members? I mean, another band that I'm sure you've toured with many, many times over the years. Tell me a 38 Special story. Um. I've got a good one. It's coming to mind. We're playing in Denver, up in about eight or ten miles high. Um, what happens? With, uh, our we're on a plane flying somewhere about three days before this date, and um, everybody's on the plane except our vocalist Charlie Hune. He's somewhere else, and we get a, our manager gets a call from our agency. We have to go and play at this uh, festival in. Denver in three days time is everybody okay with it we said because one of the bands are cancelled 38 special was on the bill and mm -hmm. um, we said yeah of course and so we go back tell the agency no problem we'll play there you know we love to play mm -hmm. and uh, and then when we landed Linda sent um, a message to Charlie Charlie Hune our singer and said we're playing this date and Charlie said well I can't do that day I'm on holiday and we said well the thing is, you know, our agency asked us to do this as a favor to them because and uh, somebody got ill or something. He said, you know, you, it's three days. Mm -hmm. So he said, you know, you're on holiday. All right. Um, we'll fly you and your girlfriend in to Denver, stay at a first class hotel, whatever. You know, of course, you everybody gets paid and fly you back to where you need to go. And he said, no, I'm not doing it. So oh. I I um let me think about this oh. i called i called up scott holt and said scott you want to come and do a show with us in denver and he said yeah <laughs> i said it's in two days time he said oh <laughs> now he's got to learn an hour and 15 minutes worth of podcast songs again he had played with us over the years and got up and jammed and anyway he flew out to denver we stayed in Denver. I went out and bought uh, three little Marshall Cube amplifiers because we were off uh -huh. at the time. And <clears throat> got a hotel and we sat in the room and uh, we went through the set list for two and a half days uh -huh. of just playing. And Scott, to his credit, really came through. Uh, on uh, when we got to slow ride, because of where I started, one, two, three, four, it's on two and four, which uh -huh. is like almost back to front what normally play. Scott completely turned it around and went and, went, and then fell on the floor. Rodney O'Quinn fell on the floor laughing, and so there's me and Brian standing there. And um, the other band was were around going, So where's Charlie? and like. <laughs> Is this new singer you got that doesn't know the beginning of Slow Ride? But it was like it was funny. The audience cheered and clapped because they yes. thought it was part of the act that we're laying on the floor laughing. 
<clears throat> because everybody knows so, right? Uh -huh. um, but um, that was the last time I saw them. And uh, oh, we man. had it afterwards. And a couple of them said, well, where's Charlie? Uh -huh. he, uh, he's on holiday. Uh, <laughs> after Permanent this, holiday, possibly. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, nobody yeah. else in the band says, I'm on holiday. Well, actually, there was one other person who said that, but he's no longer with us. Um, uh, no, it was... Um, <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. great. Okay, I know we're up on time. I think we only had about 30 minutes. I oh. One last... And let's... I assume you got to go. Yeah, yeah, but go on. Um, okay. I'm talking to you. I enjoy it too. Okay, so I have two last. Qu I have two questions. Number one: How many times in your life do you think you've played slow ride? A bunch. A bunch. <laughs> and hopefully, I'm going to play it a bunch more. I love playing go. this. It's a great song, and the audience, no matter where we are, whether they're twelve or one hundred and twenty, everybody yeah. stands up. Yes. It's like, it's our industrial love song. <laughs> yes, I know. I know you. I know Fog had had other hits, but that's the one most people know. And I think in a fair world, there would be a dozen more just like it for Fog Hat. But whatever. At least you got the big one and a bunch of other littler ones. Last question. Yeah. As we said, you've you're a lifer. You you're almost you're about to turn. You're almost eighty, Roger. And uh, but you're. I'm okay. sorry again. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> But you're still killing it. And I wonder, with everything you've seen, tell me your favorite rock and roll story. When you look back over all of this, meeting a hero, parting with someone, whatever, tell me. Uh, I have had my fun, yes. as the song goes. But, um, wow, there's so many. I have to talk about something that was a highlight of my life. Please. Um, you know, getting drunk and having fun and getting stoned. I mean, I've had more than my fair share of that. More than your fair share, Roger. But, uh, no, uh, 1977, uh, we just finished the Stone Blue album and we did and uh, we did a show in New, in New York at the Palladium um, called Foghat's Tribute to the Blues. And I got, Foghat was the house band that we got to play with Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Johnny Winter, who will be toured with as well, um, Paul Butterfield, uh, Willie Big Eyes Smith. Who was playing piano, Linda? Pine Top. Pine Top Perkins, I knew that. Oh. We have a picture of Pine Top in our studio down in Florida and everybody else. Uh -huh. I got and uh, Eddie Bluesman Kirkland. I got to play with all my musical heroes, but more importantly, my mother and father were there. It was his six, oh. dad's 60th birthday, and um, 1977, I had more money than cents. Actually, my wife says if I had a dime, I'd have more money than cents. I'm not sure what she means about that, but mum and dad were there. So uh, we're backstage at one point, and I introduced mum and dad to Muddy Waters, king of the blues as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I, I say, mum, dad, Mr. Muddy Waters, Muddy Waters, my mum and dad. <laughs> my grin comes back even now. Uh -huh. because yes. my, I was the youngest of, of three sons. And mum and dad had heard Muddy all the time. My favourite album was uh, Muddy Live at the Newport Jazz Festival. That was a fantastic record. But there's their youngest son playing with his musical heroes and introducing his parents to them. That was 
there's a bunch of others, you know, yeah. Willie Dix I've met and I've had dinner with Willie at his house. Um, countless great moments. But that was one that will stay with me forever, yes. you know. I I'm wish playing. people could see how bright your face is just telling this story. Speaking of which, is that John Lee Hooker behind you on the wall? Uh, no, actually, it's just uh, Buddy Guy. Oh, I Buddy was, Guy, uh, yes. Um, I was a presenter at the uh, Blues Awards down in Memphis, and I met, uh, that was the first time I met Buddy. I've met him many uh -huh. times since then. And uh, beautiful man, really, yeah. really good guy. And, uh, he uh he won best record best guitar player uh best album best blues singer and uh, the co-presenter i was with said does buddy play piano because if he does he'd have won that too um <laughs> actually, scott holt spent 10 years playing in buddy's gout band so uh scott and uh, and i got to meet buddy guy a number of times after that because of scott's mm -hmm. friendship uh, actually, Buddy was playing out here on Long Island one time at a, a theatre, uh, the Paramount, and uh, Scott was staying with me for a couple of days. We were working on some music, and uh, we went down there, and Scott was going to get up and play with Buddy's band. But first of all, we went to meet Buddy. You get in line outside the dressing room, and you know, you're waiting to get in there because everybody wants to meet Buddy Guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it's we get ushered in, and uh, yeah, it's Scott and Buddy hug and like um and on the table is a hundred year old bottle of cognac. And uh we're talking and stuff and Buddy sees me eyeing it and he says, uh, you, uh, you want some of that? And I said, Yeah, thank you. He said, Help yourself. So I pick up this huge bottle and put <laughs> uh a cognac. And uh, then, you know, we talk and then we say our goodbyes and uh, Scott stayed back there because he was going to get out and play with Buddy on three or four songs. And uh, as we're walking out of the dressing room, we get, we're going downstairs. Scott says to me, you know, Buddy never offers anybody his cognac. And I said, <laughs> well, maybe he figured an Englishman would appreciate a fine cognac. Uh, yeah, Buddy Guy, uh, an yes. absolute <laughs> living statement and yes. and. Uh, Beautiful human being and probably one of the greatest singers and blues guitarists ever. Yes, yeah. he, absolutely, absolutely. Again, I wish people could see your face light up the way you when you talk about these blues guys. Uh, Roger, thank you so much. I mean, Foghat is great, and I hope you get to keep playing for years and years. I'm excited to finally see you guys this February here in Denver. Uh, All right, there you have it, Roger Earl. Was that great? I love both these guys. I, I love that we get to hear from these guys. They are just legends out there doing their thing still better than ever. I love it. And if you get a chance, I'm going to finally see Foghat in concert this February. And uh, I hope you guys do too. I wanted to close it out with, they, they released a Christmas song. All I want for Christmas is you. And since it's the day after Christmas, let's play it right here. That's what it is. Uh, also, guys, I want to alert everybody we're this is the last episode of the year and we like to find out what your favorite episodes of 2023 were so please because we're going to talk about them when yan and i do a recap episode in the next couple of weeks so send over to us what your favorite episode was if you're going to count more than one rank them for us i don't care how many you rank but rank them so that we know and we can keep tabs you guys know by now 
You can send us a message on Facebook. You can email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us, I guess, or whatever, at the Hustle Pod. And uh, it's been a great year. Next year, as we often do, we're gonna, we like to kick off the last couple of years. I think I've kicked off the year with a major producer. And that's what's coming up next week. We're going to talk to a legendary producer who's worked on tons and tons of things. So that's what's coming up next week. Everybody, we love you. Thank you so much for your support and your listenership. And uh, I hope you have a great holiday.